welcome back to PLDL Explorers, the Portage Lake District Library's new podcast. I'm Liam Anderson. In this episode, we're going to leave Lake Superior for the mainland, closer to the land, but still hovering a couple inches off of it. That's right, it's time for some spooky shenanigans. First though, let's talk about the library a bit, and what it has to offer on a daily basis. A library isn't just a place to check out books or attend learning programs. It's a place to hang out, relax, and enjoy a great view of the portage, all for free. Even if relaxing to you means browsing the internet while slumped in a comfy armchair, you're welcome to join us down on the water. But let's get to the episode. Ghost stories show up in almost every culture. Entire pantheons and religions have come about because of the intricate interweaving of hundreds and thousands of fireside tall tales whose protagonists grow into heroes and gods after centuries of retelling. Most ghost stories, though, never move past the early stages. These are the ones that we grow up with, and sometimes out of. The house down the street built on a colonial cemetery, the abandoned factory that echoes with the cries of 19th century child workers. Most of these stories are incredibly grim. It's really hard to talk about them delicately enough, since they're so frequently accompanied by tragedy. I've done my best here to pick some stories that are a little more lighthearted. There are still ghosts, but no vengeful ones. But you don't start a meal with the steak. We're going to warm up with two appetizer-sized, semi-supernatural tidbits. These are less stories and more places with stories attached. Up in Bay Degree, a bay near the tip of the Keweenaw, there's a beach with, um, sand on it. This sand, presumably, is pretty special. If you put your hand down and rub it in a circle, it sings. Sing might not be quite the right word, but it's kind of like a high-pitched, gentle humming. There's an old Ojibwa legend saying that this singing is the echoes of a maiden who lost her love across the lake, calling out to her betrothed. I couldn't quite find the exact details. The point is, the sand makes noise when you rub it. I've actually been to this beach. Some friends and I got lost there on our way to Bear Bluff one day. We stopped off at this beach, which at the time, I didn't know was special. The first thing I noticed was that walking on the sand felt a little strange. It's hard to describe, but the closest thing I can imagine is walking on a huge pile of playing cards. Everything under you seems to shift as if it's sliding, not rolling like sand normally would. Slapping or stepping hard on the sand produces a kind of yelp, like a medium-sized dog barking. The phenomenon, sadly, has a scientific explanation and occurs in actually a few different places around the world. It happens when the sand is very quartzy, spherical, and free of dust and biological matter. According to Wikipedia, and some of its sources, don't worry, I do know how to research, the actual sound is produced by the layers of sand sliding against each other, which sort of explains the playing card feeling. Because all the grains are so uniform, they move in sheets. There are a couple of other theories to explain the phenomenon, but they don't seem to be as widely accepted. One is that each grain is coated in a layer of salt dust, creating an effect similar to a rosin-covered violin bow on a string. The other is that thin layers of air form between layers of sand, which can vibrate and make noise. To be honest with you, none of these explanations really make a lot of logical sense to me, so I'm going to stick with the story about the maiden. The really important part of the Bay Degree legend, though, is that the sand stops doing this once you move it off-site. Based on the science explanation, I assume this is because the layering gets disrupted when you put it in a bucket, but I think it's more likely that it's just not echoing the Maiden's song anymore. The Maiden's singing isn't the only special thing about the area, though. Bay Degree is actually a misspelling of the French phrase for Grey Beast. 
There are two explanations for this, and one is way more fun than the other. The boring one is that the natives burning the nearby bogs created a gray beast of smoke that rolled out across the lake. Sadly, this one is a bit more likely. The exciting one is that there is a literal gray beast that roams the area. There are a few different takes on this. One says that it's an old Ojibwe story, but others consider it more modern. It was often used as a kind of boogeyman for the local kids. There's a monster out there, naughty kids who are out at midnight being delinquents will get eaten. Grey Beast sounds a lot like, uh, wolf, but honestly, I can't really find much more than a few sentences about the myth anywhere, so it's kind of hard to tell what kind of beast they were talking about. There's a reason I call this part an appetizer. There's not much of a proper story to it, but it's definitely a fun little pair of phenomena. If you have a spare day, consider it spending it at the beach at Bay Degree. Hear the maiden sing, and hope you don't spot the eponymous beast. This next one has the coolest name of all the stories today, the Keweenaw Vortex. I've only lived in this area for about three and a half years, but I would have thought I'd have heard about a spiritual nexus, a confluence of ley lines, before now. This hotspot is located under the Prospector's Paradise, a roadside stop on the way up Highway 41 right by Alloway. To say the absolute least, it's a pretty wacky place. The first thing you need to know is that the name Prospector's Paradise is written in five-foot-tall letters along the outside wall. On the back, there's a painting of a pair of Finnish healers slash mages slash shamans, and inside, the proprietor sells rocks and minerals. Underneath, however, energies abound. Some of the ideas behind the Keweenaw Vortex involve a meeting of underground rivers, a high density of earth energy, or a few other similar explanations. I'm not going to pretend to have the truth behind this. To be honest, it sounds like a pretty wacky affair to me all around. But then again, I haven't actually been there. Maybe when I visit, I'll feel the energy coursing under me, but for now, I'll leave that up to you. So there are a couple bite-sized chunks of the supernatural up north. We're going to take a quick break, then get back to some of the meteor stories. Library card can transform your life. Libraries offer resources and services that help people pursue their passions and give students the tools to success in school and beyond. From story times, cooking classes, and weekend nerf battles, to opportunities to borrow audiobooks, movies, and video games, there's something for everyone at the library. Stop by the library today to sign up for a library card and visit our website at pldl.org to learn more about dozens of upcoming events for all ages. And with that, we're off to some proper hauntings around the area. The Keweenaw is full of old buildings. A lot of structures, even in the more heavily trafficked Houghton-Hancock area, are still around from the late 19th and early 20th centuries. College Ave, between Michigan Tech campus and downtown Houghton, is home to many of these buildings, but nearly all of them are fraternity or sorority houses now. What do you get when you mix college students and old, creaky, labyrinthine buildings? Ghost stories. The Tau Kappa Epsilon House, or Teeks, is one such place. Multiple floors with decentralized staircases, a basement, and a constantly changing population all come together to make a nearly perfect haunted house. The cherry on the ectoplasm milkshake is the cherry room in which the previous owner died. It seems to be pretty widely accepted that fewer people in a house increases the likelihood of a ghost passing by. During breaks from school, the Teak House often only has one or two fraternity brothers living in it and taking care of their two golden retrievers. A big empty house, two pets, perfect setting for hauntings. 
One night, over a school break decades ago, two of the brothers were holding down the fort, hanging out and chatting in the living room late at night. A crashing sound came from the basement stairway. The pair dashed off, taking different paths to the stairs, assuming one of the dogs had hurt themselves. Seconds later, though, both retrievers scampered up behind them. No movement was visible down the dark stairwell. A flick of a light switch still revealed nothing. The house was quiet again. This wasn't the only time the Teak brothers felt that they were the unwelcome guests, though. Over the decades, there have been several reports of a chant echoing through the house's labyrinthine halls. If the brothers' lore is correct, the chanting of this old Scottish prayer comes in the voice of John H. Rice, a rich local businessman and the second owner of the house. He was, however, the first person to die in it. Rice bought the house from Ransom B. Sheldon Jr., the son of a copper magnate, in 1898, a full 61 years before it became the Teak House. The family sold the house in 1941, shortly after John Rice lived out his final days peacefully in the Cherry Room, a bedroom on the second floor. The story starts to feel a little contrived from this point, since there doesn't seem to be a particular reason that Rice would be haunting this building. There's always the classic unfinished business explanation, but that feels weak to me. Still, if I were Rice, I think haunting my own house and chanting Scottish prayers at college students sounds like a pretty fun way to spend the afterlife. We'll come back to the next story after a quick break. Did you know a library card gets you extra benefits at businesses in the library's district? PLDL's Show Us Your Smart Card program asks area businesses to offer unique discounts to library cardholders. Simply flash your library card at participating businesses for deals on coffee, salon products, tattoos, laser tag sessions, musical instruments, outdoor gear, and more. Your library card is your ticket to opportunity. Visit the library to sign up today and find us online at pldl.org. Let's get back to it. The Calumet Theater has all the aesthetic trappings of a place that's just old enough to be haunted. While ghost story connoisseurs may scoff at the vagueness and circumstantial evidence of the theater's creepy goings-on, there's one story that outshines the rest by far. We have to give some attention to the fact that, by any account, the Calumet Theater is haunted in a way that's almost lame. Rick Rudden, a journalist for the Escanaba Daily Press, once spent a night on the stage, throwing himself into, uh, harm's way in a manner befitting a full-blown ghost hunter. Rudden's account makes it clear that there wasn't ever much to be afraid of. The extent of his otherworldly experiences that night were a few strange noises. Plaster crumbling and falling, the knock of a hammer on wood, rattling doors, clanging metal. All these things are pretty characteristic of old Copper Country structures. Even some of the newer buildings make these noises. Rudden knew this, but as all good writers do, he left the story off with a reminder that just because there's a natural, rational explanation doesn't mean there isn't also a spookier one. But the Calumet Theater would barely count as haunted if this was all it had to offer. This tame, things that go bump in the night vagueness isn't gonna fly for pretty much anybody who knows what a ghost is. Luckily, the theater has a little better story to fill your bellies. Helena Mojesco was a Shakespearean actress famous for tragic roles. After the Calumet Theater opened in 1900, she performed there three times before her death in California in 1909. 
These performances were nothing more than a blip in her long and prolific career, but as Addis Lane and her audience found out in 1958, she may have left a bigger mark than anyone thought. Lane was in the middle of a performance of Taming of the Shrew, a play she could perform in her sleep. As she was about to begin a soliloquy, spotlight on her face, her mind went blank. The words she knew as a matter of course wouldn't come. She was frozen on the stage. Before she could recover, she felt a force pulling her left hand upward toward the spotlight and curling her fingers to point to the catwalk it stood on. There stood the ghost of Helena Mojeska. According to the audience, the ghost began mouthing the lines Lane had forgotten. Lane followed along, entranced. Mojeska disappeared. Too confused to dispute it, Lane lowered her arm and finished the play. Now, the first thing I thought when I heard this story was how over-the-top it sounded. A ghost appears in front of a packed theater and communicates with an actress? It sounds like the plot twist to a Hallmark movie. The main problem I had with it was the vast difference in intensity between the normal stuff, random old building noises, and the actual appearance of a ghost. Most haunted buildings have one or several stories with which all the spooky stuff is consistent. The Calumet Theater is different. It's just this one event, a few other straggling tales, and some weird noises. It definitely occupies a strange space as a story. It has a lot of the trappings of a corny campfire story that prompts high schoolers to dare each other to go in, but also has one really high-level haunting that, if it weren't such an isolated incident, would probably be pretty convincing. Before we move on to our final story, one more quick break. Do you have a newborn, infant, or toddler at home? Did you know PLDL offers children and families a year-round early literacy program? 1,000 Books Before Kindergarten encourages parents and caregivers to read up to 1,000 books with their children before they start kindergarten. Reading to your child is one of the most important ways parents can instill a love of reading and learning in a child. 1,000 Books is free and open to all. Visit the library to pick up your free registration packet and learn more today. And we're back. I saved the best for last here. The Tamarack House is a three-story building in Lorium, now called the Lorium Manor Inn. I think. It was hard to track down the exact details of this place since my only sources in the tech archives called it the Tamarack House. In any case, it has a pretty vibrant history. The second owners left after the father tried to shoot his son in the living room, leaving bullet holes through the interior wall. Or maybe the mortician who owned it shot his wife and grandson, then committed suicide. I couldn't quite get the facts straight on this part. A few owners later, though, saw three people living in the house. An owner and two renters, one of whom was Marilyn Fisher. Fisher wasn't in the house at the time of her first story. It's secondhand, coming from her co-renter Patty. One night, Patty was restless. She tossed and turned in her bed, unable to fall asleep. Something tapped at her door. She sat up, assuming it was one of the other tenants. Before she could open the door, she noticed a sickly green glow emanating from the doorframe. More curious than afraid, she pulled the door open and stepped into the hall. To see a pale greenish orb of light float down the hallway and disappear around the corner, dimming to darkness after it left her sight. As a reasonable person, Patty decided that whatever that was, she didn't need to meddle with it, so she went back to bed. The next day, she told her fellow tenant Marilyn about the light. 
Marilyn, another reasonable person, didn't believe her right away, but decided to find out for herself. One night, she was alone in the house for the first time in the months since she had moved in. Nobody else was nearby except an old docile black lab. She fell asleep to the sound of the twilight breeze. She was woken up by the same noise on her bedroom door that woke Patty before. Whatever went through her head when she heard that, it got her out of bed. She inched toward the door, probably hoping it was the dog, and opened it. A faint green glow came from the direction of the stairs leading to the unused third floor. As Marilyn slipped toward the source of the light, likely against her better judgment, the dog waddled up from the other direction. That ruled out most natural causes of the tapping. The same floating green orb Patty had seen greeted Marilyn. Entranced, she watched it glide up the stairs to the third story and round a corner. Like Patty before her, Marilyn decided that that was the sort of thing that was not worth the trouble and turned around to go back to bed. When she was interviewed about it later, that was all she could remember, and even then with great effort. The events seemed to be pushing themselves out of her mind. This amnesia didn't deter Reverend Terence Donnelly from digging deeper himself. For him, the story was far more personal. His brother had died in the house, and after Marilyn Fisher related her stories to him, he decided it was time to put the soul to rest. The owner told the reverend that the presence hadn't been there since the old lab had barked up the stairs one day and the neighbor had rushed over to search the upper floors. It seems that this scared away whatever ghost may have been there, but the reverend insisted nonetheless that while the owners and tenants were staying with friends and family, he would gather a group to find his brother's spirit. The small party of people stayed the whole night in the huge house to no avail. The reverend and his friends saw and heard nothing of the ghost, but I can hope that he left with the peace of mind that his brother had moved along. Of all the stories I read, this one was somehow the most convincing. I think it may have been the number of facets to the story, or maybe some inexplicable panache to the presentation of it, but as I read through the yellowed typewriter papers, I couldn't shake the feeling that if I chose to visit, I would see the same lights and hear the same sounds as the previous tenants. Every really good ghost story feels like this. Whether you're an adamant denier, a committed believer, or someone like me who really likes the idea of ghosts but just can't convince themselves, a really well-told ghost story makes you feel like you could hear, see, and feel the same unexplainable things if you were there. I know that a lot of these details don't quite line up, especially in the final story, but I'm cobbling together several accounts with the main goal of making it interesting. And again, I've tried to take as few creative liberties as possible with these stories, but some of them were a little too vague to make much of without some illustration. I hope I didn't add too much distortion to the eternal game of telephone these are stuck in. But at the end of the day, a story's a story, and I hope you liked these. This is the last official podcast I'll be doing for the library since my internship ends in a few weeks, so the future is up in the air, but hopefully I'll be back sometime soon to make another one of these. For now, so long and goodbye. PLDL Explorers is brought to you by the Portage Lake District Library. This episode was written, recorded, and edited by Liam Anderson. Our main theme is Just Around the World by Kia Locaz, used under CC license BYNCND 4.0.